Turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Exodus chapter 21. I guess I should say this afternoon, right? I guess that's what I need to say this afternoon. And uh, I know you'll be happy if I can get us out of here before we're saving, saying this evening. Somebody say amen to that. So it, uh, now let me tell you, you know, when, when stuff is scarce, basic law, fundamental law of economics, the scarcer that things are, the more valuable they are. So on a Sunday morning, man, when you get up and your, your, your blood's pumping full of coffee and you're excited to be here and everything and you say amen, that means a lot to me. But at two o'clock in the afternoon, after you're full of about four pounds of barbecue and have an eye towards the couch for a nap, then when you say amen, that really means a lot to me, all right? So just understand there's a premium on amens this evening. It means an extra special amount to the preacher when uh, when you can help them in the preaching tonight. Uh, and I appreciate all those that worked and labored to make sure that this day could happen. A lot of people working in the kitchen and, and making that possible, and I want to thank them as well. Exodus chapter number 21, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Exodus chapter 21 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. Now, if you remember, uh, Exodus chapter 20 contains the Ten Commandments. God has been giving His law. And He says this in verse 2, If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him forever. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this afternoon. Thank you for letting us be in your house. Thank you for these people that are gathered here and for the good day you've given us. Lord, thank you for our country and the political freedom that we enjoy. But Lord, most of all, thank you for Christ and the spiritual freedom that we enjoy in him. May we, Lord, uh, be a fit uh, vessel and a fit tribute to that freedom that he's given us. May we yield our lives up to him and may you get the glory in these few moments that we're preaching. May you do a work in our hearts and we'll be sure to thank you. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. It is interesting to me that in Exodus chapter 21, after going through several precepts and commandments and instructions that are delivered unto the people of Israel, that in chapter 21, God would give a statute concerning servitude and freedom and an opportunity to transcend the traditional role between a master and a slave and to instead have a relationship built on something not of precept, not of a yoke of bondage, but on something greater and deeper than that relationship. I want to read to you a passage out of James chapter number 2, and hopefully this will frame a little bit of what we want to preach on this afternoon. In James chapter number 2 and verse number 8. Now remember, James is, is a student of the law. When you study the book of Acts and his role and relationship in the early New Testament church and the church of Jerusalem, it is apparent that James is an advocate for the law. Now, I want to be careful how I say that. I believe that uh, James was a man that embraced the doctrine of New Testament grace. I don't believe that 
in his heart and mind there was an intermingling of the two. But he was a man that saw the value in the Old Testament law, the beauty of it and the integrity of it. But he says in James chapter 2 and verse number 8, listen carefully. He says, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. So he calls that law, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, the royal law. He says, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Now this is part of a greater body of context. But he goes on to say, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Now listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty. I want to preach to you for a few moments out of Exodus 21, but with this thought in mind, the law of liberty. I don't know if you're like this, but when I study my Bible, sometimes there are phrases that have been so familiar to me in reading my Bible and growing up in church, growing up in Christian education, learning things from a very young age, that it is easy for the impact and importance of that phrase to be robbed because of the familiarity. If you were to use the phrase law of liberty, particularly in a biblical context, I wouldn't really think much about it. I wouldn't really stop and give pause and consider carefully what's being said. But when we do, we find something interesting in this phrase, the law of liberty. Now, I don't know how you feel, and it's not my interest to get into a bunch of politics this evening. Uh, I don't want to ruin a good day by getting into it. Somebody say amen to that. Don't ever put me in a good mood anyway. It just puts me in a bad mood. Uh, but my understanding, very... Uh, basic and elementary understanding of civics is that law and liberty are basically oxymorons. Where there is law about a matter, there is not liberty about that matter. Part of the reason I am of the opinion that government ought to be as small as it can possibly be and do as little as it can possibly do. Uh, I believe that the best kind of government is one that you don't never know nothing about. Somebody say amen to that. It's never, it ain't got any, any intrusiveness into your day, daily lives. When I think of these terms law, the word law is a constraining term. It sets boundaries. It, a law seeks and endeavors to constrict a man's behavior and a man's freedom and a man's liberty. Now, I am not an anarchist. I believe that law has a place in society. I believe that law is a principle of God's Word as much as liberty is. But I think we could all just be honest in saying that anywhere where there is a law present, it is meant for the restraining of human behavior. By the same token, I think of liberty as the opposite of that. Liberty is the freedom to do something in any given occasion, whatever it may be. In other words, when I think of law and liberty, I think about two things that are basically mutually exclusive, at least in as much as they regard one particular matter. Now, while I believe we can be a nation of laws and a nation of liberty, when we're talking about a specific thing, you either have a law about that thing or you have liberty about that thing. Uh, anytime, by the way, and you know this to be true already, I'm not telling you something you don't already know, but anytime you get a license to do anything, you're purchasing back a liberty that should have been yours in the first place. You're having to pay the government for the freedom to have liberty when you get a license about whatever it might be, whatever matter. I'm tickled to death to see Tennessee go to constitutional carry with the gun permits. I think that's a wonderful thing. 
if that offends you, just be offended. But I think that's a great thing. I, I'm not sure it goes far enough, but I'm glad it goes in the direction that it goes. I think any time that you buy a license, you're purchasing back a liberty and a freedom that already should have been yours. You say, preacher, what do you believe we have a right to do? Well, pretty much anything except what the Bible says we don't and what our Constitution says that we don't. Beyond that, we ought to have that liberty and that freedom. Liberty is the ability to do something unimpeded, unhindered in whatever that matter is. Law is by definition something there to constrain and restrain human behavior. Yet when I read in James chapter number 2, I'm not told just of law and liberty. I'm told of a law of liberty. Has it ever occurred to you that liberty has a constraining ability in and of itself? Now, this is not necessarily true secularly speaking. If you allow people to do anything that they please, they're going to do anything that they please, generally speaking. But as regards spiritual matters, the liberty that we have in Christ is not a, it is not a liberty to license, but it is a liberty to love and to labor for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul said this, that the love of Christ constraineth us. The fact that we have liberty in Jesus Christ does not give us a permissive attitude, but rather it ought to give us a servant's heart. There's a difference between license and liberty. You know how Paul said it? Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. In other words, Paul said, there's a lot I could do, but why would I? Can I just tell you, listen, this afternoon, this sleepy barbecue afternoon, can I just tell you, if your, if your standard in life is what can I get away with, your life is going to be a mess. If your attitude and disposition about Jesus Christ is how much can I get away with before He'll nail me to the wall and chasten me, you ain't going to have no peace, you ain't going to have no joy, and your life is going to be a mess. You see, true Christian liberty is not licensed to do what we want. True Christian liberty is the freedom to serve the Lord apart from the yoke and bondage of sin in our lives. In Exodus chapter 21, I think we have a picture of this concept. The Bible describes for us a man that is a Hebrew servant. Now, that is significant, not because God's ethnically interested in it, but because God gave special provision for a Hebrew servant beyond a Gentile servant. The children of Israel were allowed to own in perpetuity a Gentile servant, but they were not allowed to own a Hebrew servant in perpetuity. The reason for that that God gives in uh, Exodus 25 is because the Lord had bought them from Egypt with His blood and they belonged to the Lord. So a Hebrew servant was a bought individual, divinely speaking. They had been procured out of Egypt's bondage by the blood of the Passover lamb. And that made them a different kind of servant. Can I say this? Uh, once a person gets born again, they become a different kind of servant to Christ than they were the servant to sin. And I don't merely mean they change masters. I mean they change their manner of service. Uh, when we are engaged in sin, uh, we are a begrudging, uh, and it's not to say there is not a, a pleasure in sin for a season, but once the, once the lashes and once the bondage and once the fetters of sin grow tight around us, we become a begrudging and miserable and bitter servant of sin. But you know, the tighter that the chains of the Lord become in our life, the more joyful we become. The closer we get to Him, the more joy that we have. Uh, the, the closer we get to Him, the more peace that we have, we're a different kind of servant. 
And the reason is because we've been bought with a price. We've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. And we uh, belong to the Lord in trueness and in sincerity. So it says, a Hebrew servant. It says in verse number 2, If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. Now, these numbers are significant. They relate to the Jubilee year. And uh, the Bible talks about Sabbath years, that every seventh year they were to let the land rest uh, from its labors. And there were a number of other uh, statutes that were commanded to the children of Israel. And then after seven periods of seven years, in the 50th year would be their Jubilee year. All real estate actions would go back to the original tribes and so on and so forth. But the idea behind that, likewise, was that the land did not belong to Israel, the land belonged to the Lord. And because it did not belong to Israel, it belonged to the Lord, they didn't have the right to have the ultimate decision over their life. Can I just, and I'm going to exhort you for a minute, and then I'm going to preach, alright? And I know how full you are, so don't, don't get nervous, I ain't going to keep you forever. But can I just say this, uh, the sooner that you recognize that you ought to be living your life for the one that bought you, then you'll enjoy true liberty. There are a great many Christians in this day that we live in that are, are they put on the yoke of servitude in living the Christian life, but they've done it for everybody except the one that actually paid for it. They're doing it for the church. They're doing it for the preacher. They're doing it for the family. They're doing it for the spouse. They're doing it for the friends. They're doing it for whoever it might be. And they are miserable in it because they're not the ones that bought and paid for you. The only one you can serve joyfully is the one that rightfully owns you. And that's the one that paid the price for your life and for your sin. The Bible says he shall serve for six years. And in the seventh, the Bible says he shall go out free for nothing. In other words, he's given liberty. He has the choice, if he wants to, to turn and to walk away. Now, there are conditions and considerations to that. We'll say a word about that in a moment. But what I find interesting is not just that God gave a provision for him to leave, but God gives a provision for him to stay. And you might say, well, preacher... Who in their right mind would choose a life of slavery and servitude? Well, we're told who would. The Bible talks about down in verse number 5, if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. He can choose of his own free will to stay and be a slave to his master. Therein he's given liberty, but that liberty has not permitted him to go free and to live a life of license. Rather, it has yoked him more permanently to his master. You know, that's the kind of servitude and service that the Lord Jesus wants of us. Uh, He doesn't want us serving because we have to. He wants us serving because we get to. And when you really begin to exercise liberty in your Christianity... It is not liberty to say I'm going to do anything that I want, but it's liberty to say rather I'm going to serve not at the opinion of other men, not at the opinion of the church, not at the opinion of my family, but rather to please Christ and Him alone. What does it look like to serve under the law of liberty? I want to give you three simple thoughts and we'll be done this afternoon. Look with me at verse number 3. The Bible says He can leave. He can go out. He can choose to go. However, verse 3, if he came in by himself, meaning if he entered servitude by himself, it was just him, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. 
Now, again, for whatever, uh, you know, issues that you may feel or have about God's structure here, I think God's a compassionate God. I, th- I think what God says here is perfect and is fine and is appropriate and it doesn't offend me or bother me. And if it bothers you, take that up with the Lord and the Holy Ghost. But I would say this. What fascinates me is not the notion of what will happen if he leaves, but rather why he would stay. Has it ever, have you ever wondered, why did God give this provision and statute? Here's the reason. God wanted that servant, before he made whatever choice he made in life, to take a clear, long, hard look at just what his six years of serving his master had brought him. He wanted him, if he stayed, to stay knowing that in staying, everything he had that was worth having was being given unto him. Can I say this this evening, afternoon, whatever time it is, it might be middle of the night for all I know, (laughs) Uh, but can I say in this moment, whatever moment that is, that serving in the law of liberty means, number one, that we serve Him in gratitude. Uh, You know what the motivating factor in your life and mine for why we do what we do for the Lord should be all that He's done for us. To serve Him in liberty is not to serve Him because we're fearful He's going to knock us over the head if we don't do it. Uh, the, the notion, the Bible says that uh, perfect love casteth out fear. If your concept of serving God is, if I don't serve Him, He'll whoop me. Now, let me say, if you don't serve Him, He'll whoop you. But if that's your motivating factor, that's an immature perspective on the Christian life. You know what God prefers? God did not command this, this uh, separating out of, of life and livelihood and family because He was cruel. He didn't uh, command this because He wanted them to go. He commanded this because He wanted them to stay. And in staying, He wanted them to stop and recognize all that the Master had done for His servant. There's two things this would make Him think of. Number one, He wanted Him, if He stayed and served, to serve recognizing the nothing that He had given His Master. Now somebody's going to say, Preacher, that's unfair. He spent six years serving His Master. Yeah, six years that were bought and paid for by the Master. But he has not brought anything substantive or meaningful. In other words, his relationship to the master was not one in which he was an employer that was bringing something to the table, but rather one where he had been bought and he had brought nothing unto the master except how he could serve. You know what we need to be reminded of sometimes? We need to be reminded just what a mess we was in when God found us. Sometimes, after a few years of serving God and seeing God do things in our life, man, I, listen, I'm thankful for it. I love to see God work in people's lives and, and, and grow them and develop them and teach them and nurture them. I, and, and it's God that does all of that. And man, But sometimes we forget what we were like when God found us. Sometimes we look at everything the Master has given us and we say, boy, look at everything I've got. But you know what the Master wants to remind us of? We wouldn't have none of that had it not been for him in the first place. Hey, listen, I, and this is true of me, this is true of you. Apart from the grace of God, every one of us would be broke down, laying in a ditch somewhere on our way to hell. Or maybe laying up in the lap of luxury, still headed to the same devil's hell. There ain't nothing about us that's worth anything except what God has done in us. And so part of that gratitude of serving God is being honest about, about what a cost it was for him to take us on, for him to save us, for Him to transform us. Sometimes we begin to be high-minded and think, boy, you know, I'm really, I mean, God really found something when He found me. Well, He did. <laughs> but what that thing was, was not anything to write home about. He wanted them, if they served, for them, number one, to serve recognizing the nothing that they had given 
to their master. Number two, he wanted them to serve recognizing the everything that the master had given them. In other words, he wanted them to recognize that all that was good, all that was worthwhile, all that was meaningful in their life had come from the hand of their master. Now, if you want to, if you want to pick apart and criticize this and that about this passage and well, what if this happened? What if that happened? You're welcome to spend your time doing it. I'd rather just sit back and reflect on how God has given me everything in my life that is worth having. I listen, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have our church family. I wouldn't have my wife. I wouldn't have my kids. I wouldn't have the peace that I've got. I mean, ain't God good? I, I mean, some of y'all listen, and you can just testify, you can praise the Lord uh, and, and worship. Some of y'all really, if you look back at the life that you lived before the grace of God found you, and you look at the life that you live now, I mean, how good God has been to you. You know, I, I mean, some of y'all, you, you, you would have never, I, I mean, I understand there's some folks born with a silver spoon in their mouth and all the opportunity in the world, and God bless them. That's wonderful for them. I don't begrudge them, but some of us could be real honest and admit that when God found us, man, we was strung out, uh, we was messed up, our life was in pieces, and all we are, we are because of the grace of God. See, liberty will make you recognize and realize all that He's given you. And here's what, here's what the Lord wanted out of that servant. He didn't want him serving because he thought he was really somebody bringing something to the table. He wanted him to serve recognizing he wanted nobody and nothing. And it was just the love and compassion of his master that had brought him where he was. That's the way that we ought to be serving God. Uh, we ought to be serving him because of how good he's been. His, first, it demands that we serve him in gratitude. Number two, it demands that we serve him in grace. Look at verse number five says that if he decides he wants to stay, here's what it's going to look like. He says, if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. In other words, God said, you can buy them for six years, but if that seventh year, if they're going to serve, they got to serve because they want to. Something God taught me pretty early on in ministry is church is a volunteer thing. Serving God is a volunteer thing. I mean, listen, the, the, you ain't here tonight because you had to be. You know how I know that? Because there's some that was here 30 minutes ago that ain't anymore. <laughs> and, and listen, you're here because you choose to be so. It's good for a pastor just saying, I'm just speaking about me. It's good for a pastor to remember, hey, the only people who come through them doors come through them because they want to come through them. They don't have to. They're not made to. But you know, I would say this, that the only kind of service that God accepts is voluntary, willful, volitional service. God is not interested in you serving because you feel like you're made to. He just assumed you didn't. It's a waste of His time and yours. I think that one of these days, and I've shared this illustration before, but I always envision, and this is a metaphor. It's not. I don't necessarily believe it's going to look exactly like this uh, or even necessarily resemble it when we get to heaven, but I think there's a truth in it. I've always imagined standing before God and having one of those big old desk calendars. You know what I'm talking about? The big old massive ones. And having on that desk calendar a whole life, be it whatever it is, 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50 years of serving God to present the Lord. And to say, look at all these days that I have served you. And I can imagine God taking out a big old sharpie and walking up and drawing an X on one of those days. And looking at him and saying, you know, Lord, why, why did you X out that day? And him say, well, that was the day that you served me, but you didn't do it for me. You did it for them. And him come across and draw an X on another one and, 
And we say, now, Lord, I know that was a day. That was a Sunday. I, I went and I served you. I remember what I did that day. And him say, yeah, you served me, but you served me with a bad spirit that day. And him come across and, and draw a line through another one of me say, Lord, I, I know I remember that. I, I preached on that day. And him say, yeah, you served me that day, Toby, but you served me in the flesh, in your own strength and not in my strength. We'll be judged not just for the, for, for the matter of our life, but for the motive of our life for the manner of our life, but for the meaning and ministry of it as well. And I would say this, that serving Him in liberty means serving Him in grace because we love Him, not because we're made to do it. I wish I loved Him more. I do. It's a failure on my part that I do not love Him more. And when we don't love Him as much as we feel like we should and need to, and and yeah, we could all say nobody loves Him enough, right? But I'm saying... Even with saying nobody loves Him enough, I'm still not happy with how much I love Him. I ought to love Him more. If we don't love Him the way that we ought to, you say, preacher, how can we engender that love? Well, I would say there's a few ways. One, uh, through recollection, through memory, remembering what He's done for us. Two, I would say spending time with Him. You don't love people you don't spend time with. And I don't just mean you don't spend time with people you don't love. I mean you don't love people you don't spend time with. I know the world tells you absent makes the heart grow fonder. That's generally not true. There are times with really annoying people that that might be true. But for the majority of people, the absence don't make the heart grow fonder. It makes the memory grow fainter. We've got to spend time with Him. And then I'd say we need to pray to Him. We need to ask Him. I, I ask Him all the time. And, and I suppose I should ask Him more sincerely. But I'll say, Lord, teach us to love You more. Teach us to love You more. Notice what love looks like for this servant. Number one, notice the words that love speaks. He says, here's what he can do. He can plainly say. God doesn't want any mixed signals. He wants you to plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children. Part of the problem is our lips say one thing and our life says something entirely different. He says, I want to hear it. <laughs> I stay after my kids all the time because they, they mumble. And I have to stay on to him all the time. Lawrence is bad to, he will start a conversation with you, but then he'll just leave. He'll just walk down the hallway and he's still talking to you, but you're like way back over there. And Schofield bumbles because he thinks it's funny. I don't know if he just likes the attention or what, but I'm forever having to say, speak up, speak up, speak up, turn, face me, speak to me. I don't, I'm not, I'm not telepathic. I need to hear the words you say understand what you're saying. You know, I wonder sometimes if our we our life says we love Him, but we mumble it. What I mean is we just barely do the bare minimum that it takes to basically convey to God that we are somewhat interested in it. And then we call that liberty. That's not liberty. Liberty is to shout with our life as loudly as we possibly can to plainly say, when you plainly say something, everybody can hear it. We ought to be saying we love Him with our life in a way that everybody can hear. They shouldn't have to wonder, does that person know God? They shouldn't have to wonder, does that person love the Lord? They should be able to tell plainly. I see the words that love speaks, but then I see the will that love surrenders. Look what it says. He'll plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children. Because of that, because I love Him, because I recognize that everything I have, I've gotten from Him, because I recognize that I am nothing without Him, He says, I will not go out free. 
Do you see that word will there? I will not go out free. You know what has just happened there? The final effort of His will was to slay itself, to put it on the altar, and to surrender to the Master's will. The very final decision that it made was to say, I choose to die here and to instead just have the Master's will and not my own. If we love Him, we'll let Him lead. Even if we have doubts, even if we're afraid, even if we don't understand what all it'll mean, if we love Him and we know He loves us, we'll let Him lead. How can we say we love Him if we won't even give our life to Him? I mean, listen, I, I, the, one of the greatest ways that I convey and communicate to my wife that I love her is I do what she tells me. I, I do what I know she desires, whatever that might be. I, I try to live a life such that I'm fulfilling her will and not my will. And there's a great many things that I just don't even know if I have an opinion on because I've never had to because she already has one on it. And I try to through the surrendering of my will to her will. I didn't say through the surrendering of my authority to her. I didn't say through the surrendering of my headship to her. But through the volitional, voluntary, preferring one another is what the book of Ephesians says. Uh, listen, I understand. I counsel people all the time. I, I counsel people getting married all the time. And I, and I counsel them out of Ephesians chapter number 5. Uh, wives, submit yourselves unto the husband as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wife even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I understand that. You know that very same, uh, the, you know, in chapter 4, you know what it says? It says, or in chapter 5, before it goes into that instruction, it says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, there's a place for roles in a relationship. There's a place for relationship in a relationship. But suffice it to say that our desire ought to be submitting ourselves one to another and trying to fulfill the desires and wishes of one another. You know why? That's an expression of our love. You know that Paul went on to say this in Ephesians 5. Uh, Nevertheless, I speak concerning, he says, I speak concerning a mystery about Christ and His church. Nevertheless, let every man love his own wife and see that she reverence her husband. You know, after all those verses that we all use, all of us preachers use for marriage counseling, and I'm for it, I'll still use But you know, after all that, uh, Paul, Paul jukes them and says, yeah, and I wasn't even talking about marriage. <laughs> and that whole time, I was trying to teach you something about how Christ loves the church and how the church ought to love Christ. How should the church love Christ? Uh, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. He is the husband of the church. We are the bride. If we love Him, we'll surrender ourselves to Him. We'll submit ourselves to Him. How do we, what does liberty look like? It looks like serving Him in love. Serving Him in gratitude. Serving Him in grace. Let me give you one final one and I'm done. We ought to serve Him with gladness. Look what it says in verse number six. Then His master shall bring Him unto the judges. He shall also bring Him to the door or under the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. By doing this, the servant sealed forever his fate with that of his master's. There was no appeal for this. There was no annulment for this. There was no undoing this. Once it was done, this servant was no longer his own person but he belonged to the Master. Now you say, preacher, why do you say serving him with gladness? Because if we're satisfied with him, why would we ever want to serve another Master? I'm satisfied with him. 
I'm not saying that my flesh don't sometimes crave other things in life. I'm not saying that my will does not sometimes try to rise in insurrection against His. I'm, I, that happens to me like it happens to you. But when I just, when I sit back and when I look at all the masters done for me, I look at my wife and I look at my children, I look at my home, I look at my life, I just gotta say I'm satisfied. He's done me right. He's done me better than I could have ever done for myself. And I'm satisfied. And I'm not looking for any other masters. I've got one. And he's awful good to me. What do we see in this verse 6? Number one, notice the significance of the place. It says, shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the door post. Now, there's a few things significant about this. One, obviously, this is a judicial setting. This is a place where a legal transaction would take place. In other words, this is not a casual thing. This is not an informal gentleman's agreement, but rather it is being sealed in the law. Why is that? For accountability. That's why the law exists. One of its purposes, right, is for accountability. When people enter a contract, which is what this is, when they enter a contract, the reason they both sign on the dotted line and somebody witnesses, Brother Ken, is so there's accountability there. And so what does he do? He goes before all the people and has them as witnesses and the judge as witness that people might see that this decision is being made. Can I say that in our life, far too often we want to hold our commitment to the Lord close to the vest because we have every anticipation of betraying it. We expect we're going to go back on what we've told the Lord. And that's why we want to keep quiet about it. Because we don't want to be embarrassed. You know, liberty involves the liberty to make a mistake. But I would say this, liberty is bold enough to commit even not knowing the future, our heart and life to the Lord. The significance, they go to the place that, that where a, a legal contract would, would take place. And then the Bible says this, man, there's a lot we could say about it. But they take that ear and put it on the doorpost and bore it through. Man, I mean, a million things we could say. You know, by the way, they had just got through coming out uh, under blood-stained doorposts out of Egypt's bondage, right? Uh, if they were to do this in the land of Egypt or if they were to do this right after the Passover, you know what you'd see? You'd see an inter intermingling of the servant's blood with the lamb's blood. Can I say that in our life when we identify the sacrifice of Christ as our sacrifice, that ought to make us a bond slave of Jesus Christ. When we see that <laughs> His blood's where our blood should have been, it ought to purchase us unto Him irrevocably as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. But beyond that, whenever a contract was, was drawn up, very often they would go to a public place and they would take a copy of that contract and they would nail it to the doorpost. And it was a public announcement that that contract had been sealed and secured. In other words, in serving the Lord, we ought to serve with a boldness that declares publicly, verbally, our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something we're going to have to commit to, church. It's not going to be, it's not going to be easier from here on out. It's going to be harder. I was reading, I think last night, the, um, whitehouse.gov definition of anti-Semitism. One of the things that they have added to anti-Semitism to the definition of it on the whitehouse.gov, look it up. I say, I ain't, I ain't, I mean, I, I've got tin full hats, but I ain't wearing one right now. 
it's on whitehouse.gov, is anything that communicated, I think the way they said it is symbolism that communicated the notion that the Jews crucified Jesus. Like this? Like a cross? There's going to come a time, sooner rather than later, it's going to cost you something to tell people I'm a Christian. It's going to cost you something. We might be coming into a time where the FBI is knocking at our door because we've stood up and said, I believe the Bible. And I believe what the New Testament says. And I believe what the cross says. We're headed that way. I'm not excited about it. (laughs) But it's the truth. It's where we're headed. We're coming into a time, it may cost us something, and it'll be real easy to get real quiet at that time. It'll be real easy to mumble our allegiance to Him. But liberty, you know what liberty does? It gives us the boldness to take our life and nail it to the doorpost right up there with the Lamb's blood and say, I am His and He is mine. I I see the significance of the place. Number two, I see the symbolism of the piercing. The Bible says his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. There's two things I'd say about this. One, that's what you do to cattle. That's what you do to livestock. You do that to tag them to denote that they belong to somebody. Does your life tell people that you belong to somebody? The way you dress, the way you talk, the places you go, the things you talk about. Can people see the servant's mark in your ear when they see your life? Liberty will cause us to live in such a way that people will be able to tell by the way we live that we are bought and paid for by the Lord of glory. I would say not only is it something that declares boldly and openly to bore his ear through with an all, but it is also a painful experience. It is an irreversible experience and it is a painful experience. It is literally the mortifying of a portion of a person's flesh. By the way, it's interesting, it's the ear, right? Because the ear is associated with hearing and obedience. Can I ask you, has your obedience been nailed to the wall? Has your will been surrendered unto His? Liberty does not lead us to operate in our will and our desire, but rather to operate in His. And then finally, and I'm done, we see the service in perpetuity. Notice what it says. When He does this, He shall serve Him for ever. Liberty yokes us eternally in servitude to the Lord. It's amazing how many people feel as though serving God is a seasonal thing in life. Now, I'm not talking about older folks. I'm sure it's true of older folks just like it is younger people. But I'm talking about everybody. I'm not talking about people falling on health problems and not able to do what they used to. I found this though. Most of the time people that serve God will serve Him even when they're in pain even when they really shouldn't, even when really there ought to be somebody younger stand up and take that job and, and do it in their place so that they don't have to. Usually people that got a work ethic just got a work ethic. But I will say this to you, this notion that we serve God for a little while and then get out, we're out for a while and we're flaky on God and we're just kind of this and we're kind of that. That's a life that's not lived under liberty. It's a life that's lived under license because we're doing what we can get away with. But it's not a life that's yielded unto the Lord in liberty. There's a lot that we call liberty that is not liberty. There is a lot in our society today that we call liberty that is not liberty. I fear as though we live in a time 
where we feel like the government's permission is the same as liberty. We feel like if they won't shoot us down in the street like dogs for doing something, that must mean we have liberty in whatever it is that we're doing. But can I tell you that a great many Christians have just as convoluted a perspective on Christian liberty as we do on civil liberty today. A lot of people think, well, as long as God's not going to chase me down, nail me to the wall, have me swallowed by some big fish, I must be doing okay. But let me tell you something. When you really get a taste of what Christian liberty is, it won't make you follow afar off like Peter did. It won't make you begrudgingly be dragged to Nineveh like Jonah was. But it'll make you walk close to him. As close. Because see, the liberty is not the liberty to stay away. It's the liberty to approach close. It's not the liberty to quit serving. It's the liberty to finally serve. It's the liberty not to take as much as we can. But it's the liberty to give everything unto Him. So I wonder in your life, is it law or is it liberty? You know what it should be as New Testament believers? It should be the law of liberty. I don't serve God because I have to. I serve Him because, bless the Lord, I get to. And that's Christian liberty. Let's bow with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. A musician's going to come play. I don't know what God may have done in your heart, but I want you to obey Him. Whatever it is He's spoken to you about. It could be some area of sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. It could be some area of disobedience in your life that needs to be dealt with. Whatever it is, why don't you yield to the Lord? We say we love Him. We say we serve Him. But does He have our will nailed to the doorpost? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.